All right, let's get back to the phone lines. And Glenn is up first. Good morning, Glenn. Good morning, sir. Good I morning. Have three questions. I have okay. three questions for you. Now, I look around our neighborhood, and there's a lot of fruit trees that still have their fruit very high on the tree. Is that, does that hurt the tree? Does that uh, harm it in any way? We're talking mainly about citrus trees? Yes, sir. Yeah. No, it doesn't harm them in any way. Here's what has happened this fall. In order to ripen and produce a really sweet, whether it's an orange, whether it's a grapefruit, whether it's a tangerine, we need sunlight. And we have not had sunlight. We have had three cloudy months, December, January, February. I heard from somebody this morning that we actually have the potential sunshine we would usually have in February. We've only had uh, like 25%. It's been 75% cloud cover. And so that fruit that normally would have ripened in December or January at the latest, it's still sitting up there praying for some sunshine so it can get to its full maturity. The trees are kind of ignoring the fruit that is still up there. They're blooming and setting next season's fruit, but it does not hurt the trees, does not stunt them, uh, should not impact the next season's fruit. It's just that, you know, and, and anything that you have picked, you've probably noticed, is quite not quite as sweet as usual because in order to make that sugar, got to have sunshine, and we just haven't had much of it. So don't worry about your citrus. They know what they're doing, and it's not harming them a bit. Okay. Well, I've got a Myers lemon that produced wonderfully this year, but uh-huh. it looked like an orange, not like yep. a lemon. Yet I've got a, <laughs> a neighbor behind me who's got a lemon tree that had the most beautiful lemons on it that I could find in the store. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, the the Myers lemon is one of the sweetest lemons. It is one of the thinnest skinned lemons out there. Uh, there are other lemons. There's Ponderosa. There's Eureka. There's several others that have a thicker skin, and therefore they're the ones you will see in the store because uh, Myers is just too thin skinned and too soft. So uh, um, they they will look different sometimes just depending on what the weather does but if it had a relatively and you know you're always going to get a little bit of a tartness with any lemon but uh, Myers is definitely sweeter than many other lemons now it's not to say that uh, occasionally a fruit tree doesn't get sold with the wrong tag on it but I imagine uh, I imagine yours is a Myers lemon it just some years the fruit's a little bit lighter colored than others some years it's darker some years the fruit's a little bigger some years it's a little smaller but uh, if it's thin-skinned and produces heavily, it's almost certainly an improved Myers. Why does it, why does it look like an orange? Uh, it's just uh, had a very good year, got very large. <laughs> okay. Now, since these trees are getting 12, 15-foot tall, can we top them off? Will that hurt them any at all? It won't hurt them. Um, it will limit your fruit production, but, you know, maybe you don't want to have to climb up on a limb to get to the fruit anyway. So um, I encourage people to start when they are very small and, uh, you know, just grow them as a bush rather than grow them as a tree because you're always going to get more fruit from a bush. But uh, you can prune uh, you can prune it to be just about any shape you like. Just keep in mind that you're going to be losing flowers you're going to be losing potential fruit uh when you do cut them back like that but it's not going to hurt the tree okay thank you very much sir i appreciate your time always a pleasure glenn thank you sir keith is up next uh cream will good push morning. that button and i'll get to say good morning keith yes sir 
Uh, good morning. Thanks for taking my call. Thanks for calling. I have, a, I have a couple questions about new trees that we planted in January. Okay. I have have a desirable pecan out in the pasture. I have uh, an autumn blaze maple. Uh-huh. And I have two peach trees, La Feliciana and a Fanic peach. Okay, Just John Fanic peach. Okay. Yes, sir. I'm just wondering, do I cover the the maple and the pecan, or don't worry about them? Oh, don't worry I'm about them at all. <laughs> it okay, can drop to zero degrees, and, yeah, they're not going to be bothered at all. Okay. About the only enemy of a young pecan tree is staying too wet. And uh, okay. we've actually we've had a pretty dry January and February. We've had a lot of drizzly, cloudy days, but we sure haven't had the kind of thing that was going to keep the soil saturated. Uh, but your maple and your pecan, they're going to be cold-hardy to 20 below zero and need absolutely no protection. Uh, have your peaches bloomed, the Loflus Felician and the John Fanick? The Fanic has bloomed. The other has leaped out and looks like it's about to bloom. Okay. There's a potential that it could get cold enough that it would damage the blooms, damage the developing fruit. So if there is a way to protect those, and they're probably still very small trees, the trees are not going to be harmed in any way. But if it does indeed get, you know, if it gets down into the middle 20s, that's very definitely going to impact the fruit. So we're north of Canyon Lake. So that's, oh, yeah. Like yeah. If, again, these trees may be so young that you're not going to get a lot of fruit out of them anyway. But if, you, uh, if you're if you hoping to get any fruit at all, you probably should try to wrap them a bit for the next three nights. Thank you, sir. Is that day. all you need today? Oh, uh, also the low branches. Mm-hmm. Are they going to raise up? Or oh, no. Need to touch those <laughs> no. If, if that limb is uh, two feet off the ground now, it's going to be two feet off the ground ten years from now. Okay. The first, when did you say you planted these trees? About Jan, um, late January. I think. Okay. Yeah, this year you should do the first real pruning on those trees. In fact, the only real pruning that you would do. Now, in future years, you're going to thin them heavily, but the first year you have peach trees in the ground, you want to start those trees growing the shape of a martini glass is the best way I can describe it. Uh, You want the trees to be open-centered. You want them to be branched relatively low, so you don't have to get up on a ladder to prune them, but what the way I would would prune, and this may be very severe, and uh, you have to look at the trees and, you know, just determine exactly how but you would like to have either three or four limbs radiating out kind of like the spokes in a wheel and you would like them to be relatively evenly spaced so uh you're gonna or if it was me you would cut out the top of the tree you would leave either three or four limbs radiating outward and that would be you know that this is the only year you're going to do that future years you're just going to thin things out to maintain that general shape but first year you've got a peach tree in the ground forget about fruit prune it properly and you'll never have to really change the shape of the tree again Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. Years ago, I worked with a nurseryman up in Bernie, a wonderful man and mentor, and uh, uh, we always pruned the trees for people before they took them out of the nursery, Mm -hmm. because Allison used to tell me, nobody's going to prune them as severely as you tell them to, so we do it for them and get them off to a good start. So I don't think anybody else does that. So you get out and prune your trees in that fashion, and 5, 10, 15 years from now, you'll thank me very much for that advice.
Well, with all the beautiful flowers and stuff on them, it makes me a little nervous, you telling me to cut that much, but I trust you. Well, I tell you what, uh, you don't have to do it today. Enjoy the flowers, but before they start putting the leaves on, you cut them back so they'll put the growth in the shape that you want that tree to become. Okay, thank you so much. Pleasure, Keith. Thank you, sir. (laughs) Goodbye. All right, let's go ahead and talk to Steve. Good morning, Steve. Hey, good morning. Question that you've gotten a lot of today. Live in north central San Antonio, and I just broke my back taking out a gigantic plumeria, a bunch of tropical hibiscus that have been pruned, and a bunch of like geraniums and flowers and such. Do I got to bring all those in again tonight or the next couple of days? Uh, I would bring the plumeria in. The geraniums, I wouldn't worry too much about. If you could uh, throw a little protection over them, it would be nice. Bougainvilleas, if you could throw a little insulate over them. We're not going to, if we, if the weathermen are correct, we're not going to get cold enough to do severe damage. I mean, geraniums should go to mid-20s unless they just came out of a hot greenhouse. Uh, Bougainvilleas should go to mid-20s with only minimal damage, but that plumeria could turn to mush. So that one's got to go back in. The others, I'm going to cover them if possible and uh, i'm going to watch the weather closely so the big hibiscus not too much to worry about they've all been pruned back a lot just water them up and try and throw a bag over them yeah i would cover them and uh remember you're just trying to keep the frost off of them you're trying to keep the wind off of them Uh, i would not put a plastic bag or anything like that because when that wind hits it'll just you know just tear the heck out of them flapping back and forth but uh we use a a, a fabric uh what they call a row cover fabric called insulate uh there are various different brands out there if you have or can get some of that uh that's what i would cover them up with if not an old bed sheet or something like that um and and do watch the weather again everything i'm seeing for san antonio area is saying uh 29 30 at the lowest and that's if you cover them then you're not going to get any severe damage. But the the plumeria I definitely bring in. Yeah, unfortunately, that's the heaviest of all of them. <laughs> I could have guessed that, but it's also the most beautiful of uh, all of them as far as having fragrant and unusual flowers. Ah, oh, thank you. Ah, it's my pleasure, Steve. <laughs> thank you, and sorry for the bad news. Let's get back to gardening here. Looks like it's going to be Gene and Susie and Tim and Bill. And Gene's up first. Good morning, Gene. Hey, Bob. Hi there. I have a good, good. I have a good problem. I need you to solve for me. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> Last year, I planted some cherub cherry tomatoes. Okay. And I got I got zillions of them. You know, they were just really great. I like the smaller ones better than the larger ones. Mm-hmm. So I saved the seeds from the smaller ones. Okay. So I just planted them like a week ago, and five days later, I got I put them in the two inch, you know, the six inch of little pot things. Right. Right. Now I got like the seeds were really small since I took the smallest tomatoes. So now I got like five or six plants in each one of those two-inch squares. Okay. How many should I keep? (laughs) I would, uh, you know, I would probably leave two per square, but... You know, I'll tell you, growing up with my granddad, he used to, we would start our tomato seed in a tray. We would have a tray that was 
oh gosh, you know, maybe 12 inches by 18 inches, and we might have three or 400 little plants coming up in there. We waited until the tomatoes got their first true leaves, those first little funny-looking flat leaves. Uh, those are called cotyledons. They're actually a part of the seed. And then the next set of leaves that come out are the first true leaves on the tomato. When they got to that size, he would go in and, you know, take those little plants and just separate them out and we potted them up one at a time so where you've got three or four or five uh coming up per i call those little cells within your little six-pack tray when they get up to where they have their first one or two sets of true leaves if you would like you can very carefully take them out of that cell and kind of pull them apart and leave just two of them and put them back in there and plant up the other two or three separately in their own containers or if you're going to have more plants and you know what to do with you could just you know pull them up and discard them but um, I, I, I don't think I'd leave five to a cell but two would be just fine Okay, well, that's, that's good to know. I have another situation. I moved into a property insurance about three years ago. Uh-huh. The first year I had webworms. Okay. Second year I used trichogramma wasps that had no uh-huh. webworms. Uh-huh. Last year I put wasps out, and the wind blew when they were, I'm guessing this is the problem, the wind blew, and they blew. My neighbor didn't have any webworms, but I did. <laughs> Well, so there are like certain miles an hour that you can put those out where they're not going to No, uh, but I would always try to put them in a sheltered area. And what also sometimes happens, and, and you know this because you've done it right, but uh, you want to have them where the fire ants can't get to the eggs because the fire ants would happily devour them off that little strip before they had a chance to hatch out. So uh, I, I hang the little strips up with fishing line, uh, you know, very fine, very lightweight uh, uh, monofilament line and so you need to be certain that you didn't have a problem with the fire ants having eaten the larvae but uh, the you know it the wind really should not make that much difference now last year was a weird year a lot of the webworms started earlier than they usually did and it might be possible you just didn't get your trichogramma out quite early enough but as cheap as those little things are man i'd I'd make one release maybe the first of uh oh the middle of april another release the middle of may that way you're really getting covered and um I, uh, again, I wouldn't really worry that much about the wind, but be sure you've got them fire ant protected. And if you can, hang them in a protected area. It doesn't even have to be in a tree. I mean, it could be under the eaves or something like that where they are more protected from the wind. That will guarantee you that the wind doesn't have any impact on them. Yeah, I use a twist tie with Vaseline. Yeah, yeah, whatever works. Yeah, so it's... And I, and I just put them out. So I was like, was that too soon? Oh, for webworms, way too soon. Well, uh, the nice, we, we do put trichogramma out this time of year because, and it, it's just weird, but some years we get them, some years we don't. But there's a little leaf-rolling caterpillar um, that will just devastate the new growth as it comes out on both live oaks and red oaks. And some years they just literally strip the trees. And um, other years we never see them. But, you know, by the time you see the caterpillars, it's too late to put the trichogramma out so i think you've done a very good thing as far as protecting your trees from uh these this first 
onset of caterpillars. But uh, as far as the summertime webworms, you're way, way too early on those. And uh, again, it just, you know, the, the little strips are so cheap. Do it again in uh, mid to late April and perhaps even do it a third time in May. Uh, we can talk as we get a little later in the spring and see what the weather's doing, and I can give you a little bit more of a heads up for what the ideal time will be. But what you've done now is protect against uh, one group of caterpillars, but you haven't done much to stop the summertime webworms. Yeah, actually, I was looking for the case bore whatever's that you talk about. Yeah, you're you're a little early. Typically, the first generation of case bearers uh, shows up around Mother's Day, so we would be putting the uh, trichogramma out sometime. Uh, Easter's late this year, and that's about when we'd be putting them out. We usually put them out somewhere in uh, late March, early April for the case bearers. We usually put them out early May to late May for the webworms. So uh, you've really got three different sets of damaging caterpillars you're trying to stop. Do you wait like when you see the buds on the pecan trees? Is that like a good indicator? Not really. Um, uh, again, the the onset of the case bearers is pretty much about the same time. The and one thing, and and this is a real interesting subject to talk about, but um, they they tried putting out. They actually looked at the actual time that the case bearer caterpillar eggs were hatching, and they released the trichogramma just in in advance of that, and they only had kind of mediocre control. When they released them two to four weeks ahead of the time the case bearers are expected, um, the little wasps are parasitizing other eggs, and for every one little wasp that you released, say, the end of March, uh, it had gone through two generations, so you probably had somewhere between a thousand and ten times ten thousand times as many little wasps because by releasing them early their numbers really got built up so we're not trying to make the release exactly when we expect the case bearers to come out we're trying to anticipate that and give those little wasps enough time to go through a couple of generations of offspring and uh, really get the numbers up does that make sense Yes, definitely does. Sounds like sounds like it's nim toads for the trees. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess that's a pretty good analogy. <laughs> okay, appreciate your help, Bob. Thank you very oh, much. It's always a pleasure, Gene. Appreciate your call this morning. Ah, uh, let's talk to Susie on line number four. Good morning, Susie. Hi, can you hear me? I hear you just fine. Okay, good. I live in uh, Wilson County, the Laverne area. So okay. I yeah. Okay, uh, recently I got four trees from a ranch in um, Columbus. Okay. I think they're loblolly, but I'm not sure, because they're rounded-looking ones. Yeah. And they're six to eight inches high. Uh-huh. Uh, when should I plant them? What should I do? Well... You didn't pick the best pines you could have because 
Yeah, when you get over that way, when you get into Loblolly and Slash Pines and some of those, those are really more Louisiana and Deep East Texas Pines. Wilson County, you do better to go with, uh, you know, something like the, what they call the Halapensis Pine or uh, perhaps even Japanese Black Pines. Those, those pines with the really long, thin needles, they like the more acidic soil. You've got good as sandy soil, but you really don't have an acid soil. So I, I'd go ahead and plant them any time as long as you can protect them, as long as you keep the cut ants away and keep from mowing over them. But if you're looking for a big pine tree, those aren't necessarily the ones that are going to do for you in Wilson County. Uh, if you have any neighbors or anybody that has pine trees, if you can collect the pine cones right at the base of each one of those little Oh, those little uh, projections that come out uh, that make up the pine cone. There will be a seed right at the base of where that joins the central core. And your best bet, and, and pine seed is pretty easy to germinate. And if you're looking for very young trees, you're always going to be better to try to be growing trees that are already grow in your area. You actually, when you went that far east, uh, you really kind of totally changed your soil type you got the trees from. So they probably will... Do do marginally well, but I want a tree that's just going to thrive for, for you. Well, I have some pine trees that I think are calipensis. Yeah. They're very big. I got them many years ago. They've been in the ground yeah. like 20 years. Yeah. But you know what? This is kind of weird. I never get any volunteers. Uh-huh. And no, that's 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 more unusual. You very rarely see. I mean, they're not like elms or acorns or heaven forbid hackberries. Um, the there are so many things that eat pine seeds, and uh, you're talking to a guy that loves uh, hiking and backpacking the you know the Rocky Mountains. And I look at the trees up there. The cones come down, and man, there's six squirrels, four chipmunks, and one bigger critter waiting for every one of those things that comes yeah. down and you've probably got a lot of different things if you would harvest yeah if if you would harvest the cones you know it takes in most types of pine trees takes two years for the cones to actually open and the seeds to actually come out if you would harvest some of your own pecans put them in a bright dry area and actually collect your seed before the squirrels get to them you would have some good seed but you've just got too many critters wanting to eat that seed before it can grow in your situation that's funny because the lady that I got the trees from, she's like a mile away. Uh huh. And I noticed recently driving on 539 that she's got a whole bunch more little ones coming on. <laughs> Well, if it's a mile away, you just go ask her if you can dig up some of those, and you should do just yeah, fine. She gave me the ones that I have. Uh huh. For now, these ones from the ranch near Columbus. Yeah. Um, okay, for those, now dig a little hole and put growing green in the hole first, and. Uh, that would be fine. Keep them well mulched. Maybe put a little bit of magic sand or green sand around them. But just understand that they would like a lower soil pH than what you're going to have. And there's not really any effective way to modify that. One thing you can do, and actually if you go back over to Columbus or over in that part of uh, the state, you can actually buy bales of what they call pine straw, which is just all the needles that they collect. If you would oh, spread okay. those around your little trees as a mulch, that will be a good start toward, toward helping make the soil more adaptable to their roots. 
Okay. Um, that sounds like a good idea. Um, how long do these live? Do you have any idea? In, in areas that they are really happy, 60 to 120 years. Oh, in, good. Yeah, in marginal areas, you know, probably 40, 50 years. Okay, well, I'm planning on 40 to 50 years. Well, I, that sounds like a good uh, a good window for me. Well, you know, I really don't like the way lobsterlings are safe, but like I said, I got to go on this ranch and I talked to somebody and they're helping me dig them up. Sure. They're in dirt from. Yeah. Right. Yeah, but those roots, if they're going to make a big tree, that root, those roots are going to go a long way beyond. You don't want to be like the San Antonio Botanical Garden that hauled in probably a 100 semis of East Texas dirt, which is how they planted all those pine trees up around. If you've ever been in our beautiful botanical garden up in what we call the East Texas area, they brought a lot of East Texas over here in order to grow those things. And that's just, that's just more trouble than uh, you should have to go to. Okay. Uh, well, I really appreciate you telling me what it is. It's always a pleasure. I appreciate your call this morning. Uh, okay. You stay warm. Uh, you too. <laughs> Thank you so much. All right. We're back to gardening here. Broadcasting out at Phoenix. That's always fun. <laughs> and uh, all the kitty cats, but really all the beauty out here. My gosh, they have a lot of beautiful things in bloom. If you've been admiring those uh, gorgeous ornamental peaches and things like that, um, well, this is a place you can find them. Nobody has more fruit trees than Phoenix does. And Anyway, we'd love to see you out here. I'll be here till 11. Ah, looks like we actually have a couple of open lines. If you've been getting a busy signal, probably be a good time to dial 210-599-5555. And I believe we're up to Tim. Good morning, Tim. You're on KTSA. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. When I send people to Phoenix, I, I make I make a point of telling them just consider it a park. <laughs> and you know the fun thing is a lot of these big old pecans and the trees that are over here are trees that will actually hybridized and planted by old Eddie Fanick, the uh, uh, the fellow who started the nursery over here. And and yeah, that's is kind of what it is. It's like a big arboretum. Hey, this this is this is for the lady from yesterday. I tried to call in about the uh, one of the basics on the pump pump up sprayers. Uh huh. Um, and I'm definitely in the camp with. Same camp as you is. I've already made all these dumb mistakes, so there's no need for her to make them. my <laughs> current, my all-time favorite is Chapin. C H A P I N. Yep. And they it handle bleach. Yep. Uh, which means, to my mind, as a career mechanic, it probably has higher grade O-rings and seals in it. You know, Chapin, unfortunately, their quality has gone way down. I'm with you. They are one of the best sprayers on the market, but they are not they are not the sprayer they once were were you know you uh you taking good care of yours continue to take good care of them because the next ones you buy probably aren't going to be as good the new line that i mentioned yesterday and hopefully we'll have them on the shelves but the one that i am uh, real impressed with is called centurion and uh if you're looking for a a good one to check out for the future and and yeah chapin watermatics uh they they you made a huge number of things and sadly the past two or three years the prices have gone up and the quality's gone down so what do you do special to uh to keep those o-rings in good shape 
from the from the day you buy it, from the first time you use it, use any food grade oil, corn oil, yep. olive oil, whatever. Just get some on your finger and hit every moving part on it, and yep. including the main tank O-ring, the main ceiling O-ring, but also right. trigger assembly, anything that moves, get a food grade oil on it. Uh, the other thing I would tell her, uh, I would just as far as to go in the control head on the oil. I don't expect everybody to do that, but um, <laughs> yeah, 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 I know you left. Uh, you go into that control head, you don't know what you're doing. Now you're losing little bitty parts in the crash. right, you're not right. You know? Kind of like working on a fine Swiss watch. <laughs> it's not oh, doing. Yeah. Don't try this at home. <laughs> exactly. Or do it over a big stainless steel bowl for all the parts are going to drop. There you but go. The other thing is, no matter what you spray through it, and I do, I'm huge on foliar feeding, so I'm always bumping stuff with some type of a sugar, sugary product. The last thing you do, you know, I was taught this years ago by a, a landscaper in San Marcos. The last thing you do is clean up your tools, and that yep. is send soapy water through it, yep. and then leave the soapy water in it. Yeah. And yep, so they don't dry out. Exactly. But make sure you pump it up and run, you know, run the entire hydraulic circuit, run the soapy water completely through it, you know, play around on the side of the house, write your name, squirt the kids, whatever. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> You've got the right attitude. Oh, yeah. And then, if you just do those those two things, it'll last, it'll last forever. You know, speaking of my, my current shape, and it probably is about four or five years old. Yeah. So. Well, listen, Tim, you're mighty kind to take the time to share with us, and uh, all of us that use sprayers on a regular basis will take your advice and uh, will think a positive thought of you when we do so. One more thing real quick. Uh, yeah. Schultz Nursery, which I live about a block from there. Matter of fact, I'm going to be part of their gardening class this year. Uh, Schultz Nursery is back under new ownership. That's what I understand. Yeah. Uh, you probably know the manager. His first name is Peter. Um, yeah. Uh, he goes back to Wolf Nursery, but yeah. Uh, <laughs> There's sort of an institution out there. Yeah, I, uh, uh, their former owner, uh, nice guy, but he was a former assistant editor of the newspaper, and quite frankly, there's a difference in growing plants for a hobby and uh, doing it for a profession. So I'm glad to hear from you that uh, Schultz is back in in doing it well, doing it the right way, and so keep us posted. I will. Thank you, Bob. Thank, thank you, Tim. Appreciate it very much. Bye, -bye. Bye. All right, next up is Bill. Good morning, Bill. Hey, Bob, I'm sitting here. Actually, I'm laying here listening to y'all. I'm not going to. I don't feel like getting up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, yeah, I my old kitty cat you. said, uh, you ought to just stay in bed this morning and said, sorry, Maxwell, don't have that opportunity. But uh, hey, he was curled up days. purring and saying, I, I know how to spend a day. Yeah. yeah okay. Hey, uh, I heard you and there's uh, doctor talking about wines and beers and round up and stuff about how right. bad up and how much that was. I I did run across and I should happen to be an ATV about two weeks ago. Uh Michelob Ultra has got a pure gold organic beer. Uh huh. Comes in a six pack. Guaranteed to have been using uh, organic seeds or beads or whatever the, the, the thing. The yeah, grains. And, yeah. and it, it's labeled organic. Is Michelob Ultra 
Oh, yeah, that's that's what my business partner's husband drinks. The problem is that even some of the organic beers, and it's probably, you know, there's just so much of this blasted Roundup residue in the rainwater in about 75% of the country, and there's so much drift that even some of our good organic products we're finding are contaminated with it, and the only way that you would ever know is to pay the money to actually have it tested and yeah. with your major brewing companies uh you might get one batch that was clean and the next batch that wasn't so i'm all in favor of going as organic as possible but with the lax oversight of the government and the really stupid decisions that have been made at usda and elsewhere um it's uh you know it's, it's just even some of our good organics granted they don't have nearly as much glyphosate in them as the non-organic products but i wish i could say that uh that getting organic was going to guarantee you to be roundup free but it it will certainly be lower levels but it's been demonstrated with all the testing that's been done that even some of the organic products do have some glyphosate in them uh, my friend an organic specialist was telling me that uh, uh, they're probably on most of the hops around they're actually spraying roundup on it is what they call quote a ripening agent all it does is kill it and make it easier for them to harvest but it's just they're 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 using this crap for, for so many different things that it's just getting harder and harder to get away from it so i'm with you go organic wherever you possibly can but uh i just uh, a little bit of that yesterday and that's the first time i've ever seen anything in a yeah. label well, organic in the beer aisle. Yeah, it's uh, uh, they came out with sort of an expose on it, apparently, in USA Today is what got all this discussion going. So uh, anyway, drink the best you can, Bill, and uh, and, and we'll, we'll hopefully uh, we'll find some good products that don't have so much of the, uh, of the glyphosate in them. All right, back to gardening. Just sitting here, sitting here visiting with Mark Fanick. Such a pleasure talking to pros in the business. And Mark and Mike are just great guys and all their staff over here. Uh, we're going to talk to Cosette, Wayne, Ann, and Oksana. And we start with Cosette. Good morning. Good morning. How are you Good morning. Doing? Uh, I'm, I'm a little chilly. That wind just came up, but it's not a bad day. <laughs> How's it everything in your world? Really foggy. Yeah. We're experiencing a lot of echoing. I was thinking maybe some of your previous callers had the radios on, but I don't. But I'm still hearing that feedback. Well, it's, you know, when you're doing a remote broadcast and all, it's just not quite the same as sitting in the studio. But um, the the fun of being out here makes up for the little bit of echo. I hear you just fine. So uh, we can talk. Yeah. Okay, awesome. So, you know, one of the uh, one of your callers, uh, you had actually answered the question. Um, I heard you talk to Howard Garrett about I had never considered with the things we drink. Um, and he was talking about different beers. Right. Well, I had seen Michelob Ultra Organic. Uh-huh. So I know he hadn't mentioned that, but that's really interesting. I'm glad he brought that up. But also you were talking about, um, I see on a lot of southern porches, they paint the ceilings a light blue. Right. I had asked someone in Louisiana why that was, and they said it was to keep uh, <laughs> bad spirits out. 
but there is another reason you said is it to oh yeah it uh it because uh it discourages and almost a hundred percent stops uh wasps and mud daubers and things like that if you could see my old home it was built in 1906 uh um, you know, family land they paid a dollar an acre for, so I'm very blessed in that regard. But uh, at one point when the underside of my balcony was painted white and the upstairs was painted white, old Malcolm Beck walked around and counted, I think, 120 wasp nests, you know, on the eaves of my porch. Uh, we painted them the light blue, and all the wasps moved to the barn. I think I had two wasp nests uh, out there the next year. And I don't worry about the paper wasp, but, you know, if you leave them alone they basically leave you alone but the dirt daubers it makes such a mess and i'm told even the barn swallows and things that want to build their mud nest for whatever reason they don't like the light blue paint they go somewhere else to build their nest and a lot of folks are well some folks are allergic to the wasps and nearly and you know have to have uh really don't want to have a lot of them around but that's that's the other reason for using they call it haint blue but use that light blue plant H-A-I-N-T, but any light blue will do. Okay, okay, that's what I was wondering. Yeah, well, I'm not allergic to wasps, but I am allergic to uh, the pain involved in being stung. Yeah. <laughs> but also, I had one other quick question for you, if you don't Eight mind, o'clock. if you have time. Um, I was looking on a, um, a website, and they were selling seeds for blue strawberries and like rainbow tomatoes and it looks really unnatural and it said it, they were a Japanese hybrid so I'm always reluctant um, even though it seems like a novelty it's very odd to me well seeds? just uh, plant a lot of unusual things if you like just don't count on them producing Japan's a much colder climate and very few things that do well in Japan are going to do here but I always take that with a grain of salt I always experiment and very few of them actually work out but uh, you know if we don't experiment we don't ever find anything new so I'm not opposed to I'm not opposed to giving them a try but I'm sure not going to plan my menu around what they will or won't produce so with the um with the rainbow variety of tomatoes i don't see why black or purple tomato (laughs) seems appealing i mean it's it's interesting looking but is there is it like a gmo product is something weird with it well i don't i don't know about these rainbow tomatoes but there are a lot of so-called black tomatoes that have been around for probably a hundred years they are simply ones where they have selectively bred to get a higher concentration of a uh, just a given pigment called anthocyanin in them. A lot of people think it gives them a little bit more flavor. Uh, there's a uh, very dark uh, cherry tomato called black cherry. And your bigger fruited tomatoes, gosh, we've got purple Cherokee or Cherokee purple. We've got black creme. We've got uh, lots of different ones that have a lot of that pigment in them. And uh, uh, at least the old ones are not genetically modified. I can't speak to this new Japanese these rainbow tomatoes, but uh, there, there are a lot of good black tomatoes out there, and uh, they're certainly tasty, good tomatoes. I I have to say that I don't 
Well, I, you know, I was going to say the production isn't quite as high, but then I think about Cherokee Purple, and, and it certainly, it has a good production. Uh, the Little Black Cherries, uh, I don't think you get as much as you do with Sweet 100s or Sun Gold, but you still get plenty of tomatoes. So if you like the black tomatoes, yeah, they're, they're out there, and uh, there's some pretty good things out there. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Bob. And I'm going to be starting my first vegetable garden this, this year, so I will be calling you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know I will be here to help. And uh, if you're uh, ever over in the neighborhood of Shades of Green on Sunset, stop by. We've got two or three free handouts to give you that will answer a lot of questions and making some suggestions on good varieties. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Enjoy the you're rest sure of welcome. Your weekend, Bob. Appreciate Bye-bye. the call. Thank you, Cosette.